This is coming from somebody that thinks about, you know, how you use things. Uh, really consider where and how you're holding objects. If you're thinking about getting into mobile and you're developing a mobile application for the first time, don't make all your testing static. Take it out for a walk. And that's not just for QA, it's, it's in general when you're thinking about usability. I call it the walking test. Just walk around trying to do the app as you're supposed to be doing it. And if you walk into a telephone pole, you're not doing it right. Hi, I'm Eden Fulgo, and you're listening to How It's Tested, a monthly series where we discuss great products, how they're tested, and other stories from the testing community, featuring interviews with tech leaders, founders, testing experts, and creators. How It's Tested is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at TeamMobot. That's T-E-A-M-M-O-B-O-T. Today, we'll be chatting with Ian Brillenberg, a product leader and certified Scrum Master with experience ranging from Zynga, Microsoft, P&G, Activision, and THQ. Ian is currently head of mobile product management at Plunk, a real-time home analytics platform. Hey, Ian, thank you so much for joining me on the How It's Tested podcast. Thanks for having me. It's so good to see you. Yeah, it's been really exciting to have this chance to connect with you more deeply about all sorts of topics that we're going to talk about today relating to product management, what it's like working with with Mobot. Uh, would love to learn more about what you're building at Plunk. And then also just I think there's a broader conversation we can have about just all of the interesting products that you've built throughout your career. Context for anyone who's uh, listening is Ian and I have been working closely together since our companies Mobot and Plunk have gotten to know each other over the last few uh, weeks. And it's been really exciting to just learn more about the product that you guys are building, uh, learning more about your users and, and the vision that you have for your roadmap. So maybe if you could spend a few seconds kind of introducing us to Plunk and then also your role at Plunk. Yeah, sure. So Plunk is the world's first real-time AI-driven data platform for the real estate industry. You know, basically the problem that, that we are solving is how antiquated and unreliable the processes that the real estate industry has for making decisions about how much houses are worth, are worth what kind of projects should be done on them. So it's, it's been a real fun adventure seeing our data scientists build all these amazing models and the things that they are able to do to tell you exactly how much home is worth right now and maybe five minutes from now and then tomorrow. Because it's something that turns out as particularly in these turbulent times of the real estate market, having the latest price point is quite important. And what I do there is so, you know, our product is, is data. So there's a big chunk of it that is just data coming out of API pipelines, etc. But there is a side that we are using that you know that we want to expose to the consumer. So there is a, a web app that is accessible through the desktop web and the mobile web, and there's going to be a, a companion native mobile app for Android and iOS. And that's the part that I've that I've managed. 
Yeah. What's been really interesting in, in working with you is seeing just like how core the mobile interface, the, the tablet interface, uh, the phone interface is to the user experience of the folks that are going to be using the Plunk product. Could you tell us a little bit more about just like why is it this isn't just your average run of the mill web app with some data in it? This is like a, a mobile experience. It sounds like users need to be able to use this on the go. Yes, absolutely. Like, think about a real estate agent who is walking somebody through a house. You know, they're often needing to carry a bunch of papers around and having to, you know, read off of things or memorize things. If they are asked randomly about a house in the middle of, hey, let's walk through this neighborhood, it's much easier for them to be able to, you know, look down at their palm and say, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 show, turn it around and show it in a way that looks beautiful, that is responsive, and therefore come out you know, convincing their clients and, and coming off to the clients as the authority and the expert in real estate that they are. Yeah. I'm curious how kind of in your product team, how do you guys approach doing that kind of user research to understand the ways that the Plunk product might potentially be used? How do you use that to then drive features on the roadmap? Well, we spend a lot of time actually doing product discovery. Um, that implies talking to a bunch of potential clients and getting a sense of what their day-to-day work is like, what their hardest problems to solve are, and what kind of impact they have on their, you know, either on their day-to-day life in terms of how much time they spend doing their work, which means how much work they can do and how productive they can be, or how much value they get out of each piece of work that they do and therefore how they can better affect the bottom line. Once we have all that, you know, basically it's a question of sitting down with design and engineering, coming up with you know, the right solutions to the right product requirements, which are now sorted by the things that we've learned in terms of what's more important. We have an amazing design team, an amazing engineering team, and I'm blown away by the solutions the team comes up with, and they take very humble uh, list of product requirements and ideas and you know, outcomes, you know, amazing products with amazing documentation. It's a real pleasure to work with a team like that. Yeah. One of the things that's really kind of impressed me about the Plunk product is there's the the high level of data accuracy that you guys have. And, you know, there's a very smooth interface in the native mobile app on iOS and Android. And then as well, sort of the tablet experience on mobile web, which is really cool. I can see how that um, is going to be really useful for realtors, investors, homeowners to be able to access that on the go. And Yeah, what's also interesting is I know there's like a home screen widget as well, and there's sort of like complex dependencies, you know, whether it's around location or, you know, the right zip code, your current location of the device, your your search queries on for the map API. Could you tell me a little bit about kind of, yeah, some of the features that are coming out that you're excited about? Yeah, you're you're hitting it right on the widget. Uh, I guess I should have brought that up earlier. Um, One of the things that we came up with as we were thinking about, you know, proving the quality of life of an agent was what if you, you know, just could be able to look at your phone and wherever you are, you know, this is how much real estate is worth right now in this location, how many houses there are uh, listed available, what kind of inventories, all these kinds of stats. So that, you know, in the use case that a, a homeowner with an eye out for new properties, a real estate agents, a broker, wherever they go, 
they are just have to take a quick look as they're walking, as they're driving, to just to get a quick sense of the, the space that they're in. You know, we are talking about features like image detection, take a picture with your phone, uh, and update the value of your home by detecting, you know, what quality of furnishings you have, or maybe even the brand sometime down the road, uh, so that, you know, all these little details that up until now, A, are kind of hard to encapsulate, uh, but that are really impactful in how well homes are going to sell and how much they're going to get value, but also being able to register them in an accurate and reliable way that is ingested in a standardized way, which, you know, with all these different states, counties, and even sometimes down to the even smaller spaces, each one of them with different regulations and terminology, you know, a huge part of the challenge for the data team was just translating, getting all that into a single cohesive uh, data schema. Got it. So I guess, like, how does the current testing process at Plunk work? Like, I know you have a product team, you have an engineering team. How does it all come together when you make a decision to release a new version of Plunk or get ready to release a new version of Plunk to the App Store and Google Play? Sure. Let's talk about how how it is now and not how it started. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you, when you're a small startup, you have to wear basically a bunch of hats. There's just not enough people and resources. So uh, we've gone from a very <laughs> workshop, you know, hand-built QA, which landed a lot of holes, to something that is closer and closer, getting to a more sophisticated process uh, that surprisingly is still run by mostly a one-man band uh, now, except it's a one-man band with a bunch of robots behind them. So there's a few things that, that we have to that we have to do, and actually some of them are I think are kind of unique, but at least things that I never had to deal with when I was in when I was in games or when I was in everything else. Uh, and that is, you know, we work with a with a data model or you know machine learning model that is getting updated, is learning, and works on its own timetable. We also have a backend system that has to read off of that model and it's also being updated and worked on on its own, you know, in its own timeline. And then there's a front-end team on both web and mobile that are hopefully consistently putting out bills in a more constant cadence, but that have to react to whatever happens on the other side. And because we've worked so hard to share the code base as much as possible between mobile and web, we have to be very careful about the order of operations for us to get to a, a testable build that we can be confident in because, you know, what is being tested right now is what's going to go to prod. Now I'll explain. So as you know, you know, you have the web team, you have the mobile team, and every time the backend and the uh, data team have to do an update, they're changing how the API payload is structured or how the model responds to something. Um, that means that the, the clients have to adapt, have to make changes, but they have to wait until that is done. Now, further plot twist, uh, the mobile team is offshore, several, several hours away. So basically, they're releasing builds while we are sleeping. So we have to release backend, and before we can test it on web, we have to also wait one night to release on mobile. So then the next day we can test on both because it doesn't make sense for us to test on web if when mobile comes out, it has a bug. So 
to get all that done and to save time, because very often when you ship out a new build, the bugs are very obvious. And you don't want to wait until the mobile team releases a new staging environment client just to find out, like, oh, look, this, this chart doesn't have the right, you know, the right series. So we built this app so that is kind of like a pre-development environment app. Um, that you, you install it, and then it asks you, send me towards a, you know, a, a, a branch, a PR. And then that connects dynamically to the local machine, wherever it is in the world, that is running a PR that's about to be merged. So before we are merging it to stage, we at least have an initial pass uh, very quickly internally. You know, that can be done at any time of the day whenever things come out. You know, before we tell the team, okay, push to stage. And that's why whenever we meet on Monday, I'm like, there's going to be a staging push coming out. And I'm like, okay, because it's, you know, I'm going to have to test this you know, test app uh, and something's going to come out that I'm going to have to push back. And so sometimes the staging uh, and the production environment doesn't get pushed as, as on schedule as we would like. But I've only just started telling you <laughs> the answer to the question. So sorry if I'm rambling. It's very complicated and very important. <laughs> I mean, we, we've certainly learned that together, uh, you know, you guys and, and, and us. Yeah. So now, after all that is done, we basically have, you know, because it's still a one-man band, we've worked with you guys to basically come up with all the different use cases and test scenarios that, you know, that I think can be automated. And with you guys, we run it for, you know, for both the app and then also for um, mobile web. So you guys are doing both the, the actual client and then going to the browser and doing a bunch of little actions. It's, <laughs> I'm happy that I don't have to do it right now because it's, you know, how many, like how many houses? So you have to test it up. You have to test how many rooms, how many bathrooms, how many, you know, do you have square footage? What kind of furniture? Like all these little buttons that, that I used to have to press and make sure that they were getting sent and the model was reacting correctly. Now I don't have to do all that. So you guys tell me now, okay, you know, all these standard things uh, are, are good. And then that just leads to us trying to break the model because we, we've tested us, you know, and, and then it's just, okay, the user walks into the bar, the user jumps into the bar, the user, you know, pushes a duck into the bar and trying to see what, what crazy things we can input into the model or try to stretch whatever settings in the UI uh, is done. And, you know, right now we've been to the point where we haven't released publicly. So, you know, the impact of a bug slipping is not ginormous. Uh, still, we are getting really close to launch. And, you know, we are working together to come up with ever more sophisticated measures until such a time as we can increase more QA resources. But one of the, one of the most satisfying things for us is not just how much bugs we've been burning, but how many bugs we've been finding. And, you know, during the first weeks, it was a, a barrage of bugs that were kind of like obvious, but we just didn't have either the time to do all the permutations of actions nor all the devices to do all the permutations of devices and actions. And at first it was, it was, it was slightly a little overwhelming. Like, you know, our developers were like, oh my God, it's just, you know, dozens and dozens of bugs. And, you know, as time went on, like, we keep finding more bugs, we keep finding more bugs, and then one day, we didn't find as many bugs. And we kept trying to break the app after we got your, 
you know, your, your, your processes and there were these tiny little bugs that we kept working on. And then one day there were no bugs. And I'm just looking at the Slack report from you guys. I'm like, pass, pass, pass. And I'm, I'm just like telling the entire team and the entire team is looking at it. And we're all so happy because now we're, we're, you know, we feel a lot better about shipping out a beta, which it might, you know, hopefully will be as early as next week. So what a strange twisted trip it's been. It's interesting because what you just described is is pretty similar to, I feel like I've personally had that experience before as a PM and working with a lot of the teams that Mobot has a chance to work with, where there's sort of like an initial cleanup period where you're kind of auditing the whole app and you're just figuring out and getting a lay of the land of like all the possible bugs in the universe. And you kind of have to like whittle it down to like, what are the priorities? What are the features that you actually care about testing? Yeah. And then there's like a little bit of that tech debt you do have to pay down but then you get to a hopefully a point that like okay this is this is the new foundation this is what um, the engineering team has to build on and I'm curious now that you're at this point and you've arrived at a point that you're happy with how do you think about as a team in terms of your beyond testing just like engineering best practices product development best practices like how are you guys gonna approach um, the way that you build and, and ship every week to kind of like keep this really healthy state that the product is in? You know, part of the things that we have worked on really hard over the last few months is getting to a place where we're doing continuous deployment, being able to find mechanisms to do continuous deployment with machine learning models that, you know, that don't have a reliable timeline. So part of those things that we're finding best practices is the process that, that I just mentioned and part of what we're learning is how to do those best practices. And it's something that you guys have been helping us a lot with because, like I said, we, we don't have anybody in-house that, that knows all those best practices. And it's it's been an interesting journey, you know, just just learning the basic things that probably, you know, the basic QA team knows. And now, you know, really starting on that, you know, on that even further learning journey of, okay, now we're going to go live. We're really going to have to be agile about responding to tickets in real time. Uh, we've worked really hard to make sure that we have a pipeline that goes straight from users uh, reporting a bug to our Jira instance to, you know, to making a, a, what is it, a flow that tells us, okay, we need to test this specific thing. And then we add it as a, we'll add it as a use case when, when that happens. Um, which is something that we've yet to really, really flesh out, but we actually were talking about yesterday with our customer service uh, manager. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm afraid like I can tell you like newer best practices in terms of how to, how to do QA, because that's not what I do. I look to you guys to advise us and to lead us down the, the straight and narrow path. Yeah, it's been a really exciting partnership so far. And um, I think it's it's really interesting just getting a chance to work with you and, and your unique view as a, as a product leader. Um, we work with a lot of engineering leaders. We work with QA leaders and we also work with product leaders. But what I've found really special about our partnership is 
I have a similar experience um, as, as a product manager uh, as you, where I sort of got tasked with having to just rope in QA as a part of my roles and responsibilities because kind of no one else was doing it, but it's actually really important. And so the way that, you know, product people think about QA and testing and the way the role that it it plays the responsibility that that carries is sometimes different than the, the the perception from other team members on the team. Yeah, it's it's funny when I talk with with other PMs, particularly PMs that are a little little younger. I often hear comments about you know oh you know the the higher ups don't understand this or they don't know that. And first, you know, I, I guess I should clarify that you know all of this is kind of like with the proviso that you know. Everybody knows more or less about all kinds of different things. But I guess my point is, you know, it's not so much about, you know, what people know or, or, or don't know. It's about how often history repeats itself and how startups usually go through very similar convergent paths. Like, for example, how many startups don't find themselves looking on one side at their ever-diminishing uh, runway and looking on the other side of their ever-increasing scope to make MVP. How many people find themselves in that situation and the choices that leadership has to make usually fall in the same similar choices? You know, what I found about whether, you know, what people know or don't know or what they ignore or what they don't ignore is, A, on the one side, you know, how much foresight you have to, you know, to really assess what's coming up in the future and the resources that you have having the humility to accept that, you know, the scope that you can bite off is not as big as you think it is. And lastly, really, it's all about the specific variables in the universe in your own specific region of space-time. You know, luck is luck, and eventually, without it, there's only so much you can do. Nobody can, you know, everybody needs just a little speck of it. Yeah, I can relate a lot to that, given sort of my own journey building Mobot and, and us being a startup as well. Um, and, and there is definitely a, a tension there of like, there's there's so much I want to build still, um, but like you, you do have to balance that with like, what is realistic? What we have to listen to our customers. We have to listen to sort of the North Star and the product vision that we have and, and kind of balance all of that um, and, and be somewhere in the middle of that. Yeah. Yeah, for example, oft uh, repeated decisions that are made as you're nearing your, you know, your deadlines and you're and you're looking at your roadmap is, for example, telemetry. It's it's rare in my several, you know, because I've spent most of my time in, in really early stage startups. Several times, you know, we are forced to release with, you know, very scant uh, analytic telemetry or none at all, and it's not a question of whether we knew that we had to do it or we knew we didn't have to do it. It's a question of, hey, we have only so many developers, only so so much time, and trade-offs have to be made. Sometimes it's, yeah, I mean, it, it can be anything. Sometimes it's QA, in which then the great thing about, about Mobot, actually, in this case, and I'm sorry, I'm sounding like a shill, is you can do more with a lot less. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the plug. Yeah. <laughs> So you were touching on just like, you've worked on a lot of different products. You've worked in gaming. You're working on a project related to blockchain. Um, and you've managed a lot of products. You've founded companies before, you know, in your very long career. 
Um, I'm curious if you could tell us a bit more about just like your personal background and how what even led you down this path of being a product leader. <laughs> That's a good question. You know, I, I love what I do, and I I think I I found you know, my, my my true calling in terms of my career. However, I had no uh, expectation or idea that that's where I would land. I, I graduated off of, of college with a degree in biology wow. um, out of you know, in, back in Venezuela where I'm from and I quickly found out that biologists don't make a whole lot of money and that I like making at least a little bit of money. But anyway, so I started working at P&G and consumer and market knowledge. So I spent a lot of time listening to consumers and just trying to figure out what makes them tick, how we can solve their problems. And eventually I decided that I, you know, that I really liked figuring out what consumers like and trying to come up with ideas for how to address these needs. But I also knew that I did not want to work on consumer packaged products. So I decided to go to business school. I went to UCLA and being in, being in LA, I, that's when I realized that I, I really like the, the games industry. That was my first love. That's kind of what started it all. I went into the games industry with the idea of, okay, we're going to figure out you know, what games are, are going to be sold and how they're going to be sold. And eventually you get more and more involved into the how the things are built, not how they're sold. And I, I fell in love with it. And as I kept doing it, you know, more and more in, in the games industry, eventually I wanted to see, you know, all these things that I've learned and, and what I love doing about, about um, you know, about product is choices. Is how do we get users to go down the, the golden path and what kind of incentives do we give them? How will they going to react depending on the different use cases and how can we delight them along the way? You know, it's it's been an interesting move to now try to do that in more enterprise, more business, less entertaining products. But yeah, it's it's yeah, I'm still doing it after what I think it's over a decade now, and yeah, I love doing it. Yeah, it's interesting how you've kind of unconsciously or maybe consciously specialized your career in mobile. Maybe it's because of just like that first immersion into gaming. And so there's a very close relationship between gaming and mobile. But is there a, sort of an intentional reason um, behind why it looks like you've kind of, your, your expertise or your preference is now developing from the mobile tech stack? I mean, it was, in, it, it was being in, not being in the right place at the right time, but being present for, uh, for a revolution. I was working at... Um, Zynga, right around the time when when mobile games started to go from being just this side thing that gets packaged to sell uh, a mobile phone to, okay, now uh, mobile phones are a platform and you can build games on them and games were starting to become more and more prevalent. So eventually we started noticing that we were losing you know, our, our business to, to mobile phones we started looking into well, how can we, you know, replicate these um, these experiences. How can we, you know, also get into this into this space? And I I was there for that, and I I happened to find it really impassioning because you know there's all these new different ways of interacting, and there's all this empty space. Back then, what I thought was 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 super interesting was location. So I I, I worked in this location-based game studio. 
and back then it was it was the bee's knees, you know, because like all of a sudden this concept of wow, you you can you know you can play and have the game react wherever you are was was novel. And ever since then we've you know it's been okay. What different experiences can be can be enabled with this new technology? And I guess that's part of why, as you say, like I'm a little bit on blockchain. It's like now it's like, ooh, what kind of new cool things can be built? And you know, finding cool tech that makes you feel a lot of passion is, at least in my case, has been kind of what has driven you know where my career went, or at least you know the the, the early and middle parts of it. Now I like to think that I am slightly more driven by. Like okay, let's let's understand the opportunity and how we can impact things in a real way. But yeah, at, for for the longest time, my biggest driver of where I was going to work was just passion. That's fantastic, and it's it's really clear, just like the sort of thought and intention that you've put into like the the kinds of products that you choose to get involved in, the kinds of initiatives you choose to get involved in. It's amazing. I've been incredibly fortunate, honestly. Like like it's mm-hmm. like I'm. I'm Incredibly grateful to have been exposed to so many interesting things and interesting people. Yeah, so it, it's been a it's been a good experience so far. We could honestly do a whole other episode around all the other products that you built before Plunk, <laughs> and even uh, some of your blockchain work as well. We'll have to save that for a different episode. Yeah, for sure. Last question for you is. What advice or sort of like insights do you want to share with like other product leaders who might be listening to this podcast or CEOs or, or founders that, that might be um, thinking about either mobile product development or mobile testing? Any, any insights that you'd like to share? Well, two things, I guess. The first things is, and it's probably something that might be obvious to others, but for me, particularly in, a, in, in, in having worked in mobile for, for the longest time, but not having been physically present doing QA, really consider, uh, and this is coming from somebody that thinks about the, you know, how you use things, uh, really consider you know, where and how you're holding objects. Um, I don't know if you remember, like we, it took us forever to realize that there was a bug because we test things, you know, you, you know, when you're testing things, you test things on a flat surface, or you're testing it really briefly, and then there was this huge bug that took us, you know, what, two weeks to figure out, and it was because the thing that made it happen was tilting the phone. And until we lifted it from from just being on the table and actually picking it up, that's when we were reliably able to reproduce it. So, so that's one thing. If you're thinking about getting into mobile and you're developing a mobile application for the first time, you know, don't make all your testing static. You know, really take it out for a walk. Um, and that's not just for QA, it's, it's in general when you're thinking about usability. I call it the walking test, just walk around trying to do the app as you're supposed to, to be doing it. Um, and if you, if you walk into a telephone pole, you're not doing it right. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's the first one. And the second one is, you know, be aware if you're a small startup or if you're building something in a particular category for the first time, you know, Listen, you know, rewind back to what is it, the 20 minute mark, the 15 minute mark, whatever it is, and listen to the bit about history repeats itself. And really, really like, like whatever you think you're going to build and then you scope down to the MVP, you're not going to get there. So plan almost for failure and <laughs> you might be okay. 
you know, and, 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 and it's okay. Like really like that frequently said thing about uh, being embarrassed by your product uh, is true. If, if you're still embarrassed by your product, you know, if you're not embarrassed, you're launching it too late. Yeah. There is a lot of good quotes in there that I feel like I could print on a t-shirt um, for anyone who's starting a startup to remember. Because, yeah, I, I remember in the early founder days of just like, you, your hopes are so high and, and you know, you haven't gotten enough feedback from the market and customers and users yet. And, yeah. You know, and it, it it gets exciting. It's more exciting now and more rewarding to like be on this journey now and like have real users or real engineers that you're working with and you know putting together a real roadmap. But I can totally relate to sort of like that that contrast and just just the the resetting of expectations that needs to happen. You know, if you ever if you ever do put a quote of mine on a T-shirt, um, just make it my number one rule of product. And I've I've learned this from from very many years ago, rule number one, users don't read. <laughs> they will never read. Don't expect them to read, and you'll be better off. <laughs> it's not necessarily related to QA, but honestly, you, you will save yourself a lot of time and grief if you remember that your users will not read. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting and, and very thoughtful way of approaching product and design and you know thinking about a UX. Um, and I can also relate to that from from the QA side as well. Sometimes I think we we send out great thoughtful test reports, and the details are in the test reports. <laughs> <laughs> you don't read, and everybody's a user. Yeah, it's it's a it's a little cynical, but that's that's one of the ways I found you actually love your users a little more. Yeah, and designing for them, thinking about them, empathizing with their perspective is important. And it's okay to just say that, that users don't read. Users don't read. And for, for 99 cents, you'll get the other five. <laughs> Thank you, Ian, for taking the time. Um, this was a fantastic conversation. I really loved getting to hear more about Plunk, your vision for the product and the team at Plunk and what you guys are building. There were some really good bits in there about just like the the progression and the journey that you guys have been through of, you know, pivoting the company, building this new product. Uh, really loved hearing about that um, and your personal background as well. So thanks for taking the time. Really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I hope you find it useful. I've, I've had a bunch of fun. So whenever you want to sit down and talk about, you know, development horror stories, happy to be here. That's all we have time for it today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Team Mobot. That's T-E-A-M-M-O-B-O-T. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com.